In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope even, if I should have a husband this night and should, should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die... I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of the, of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, we are uh, pausing our series in 1 Corinthians, and we are going to be looking at uh, this book of Ruth over our Advent season. It's an it's a important story in the grand scheme of the Bible. Um, it's a beautiful story. It's uh, probably one of the greatest short stories, love stories, um, that has been written, not just uh, in a literary sense, but the importance of how this fits into the Scripture together. Advent is really, as John explained, really about us entering in, into the season of expectation or longing. Um, the people of God in the Old Testament had been promised a Messiah. They had been promised someone who would, who would come and lead them, and uh, uh, they were waiting this king, as it were. And there was this longing, this expectation of when would God fulfill his promise. Um, we, as John said, live on the other side of Christ's first advent, but we enter into that same kind of longing and expectation as we await his second and final coming, 
the second advent. And Ruth, in many ways, echoes so much of uh, these themes. Uh, there is a, a dark season that this uh, book takes place in. Um, there's a, a sense of uh, needing God to come and to rescue and to literally send a redeemer um, to come. And uh, mm-hmm. this is a, 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 has all the elements of kind of a well-written story that we look forward to, doesn't it? This plot involves a story of redemption, um, which we learn is actually part of the greater story of redemption of the Bible. This is in micro, what we see the gospel do in the macro story of the Bible. Like any good story, there's a plot, there's conflict. Naomi, as we see, is the main character that opens up in this opening scene. And uh, she stands in the middle of the conflict of this book. She is a widow with no son uh, to carry on the family line. And we see this family line is important because it's the royal line. It's the line that King David would come from. It's the line that eventually Jesus would come from. And then there's this resolution. At the heart of this resolution is this figure called Boaz, as we'll see. Um, I assume you've all read this book, so this isn't going to be like spoiler alert or anything, right? If you haven't read it, I'm sorry. Go and read it. It'll take you no more than 15 minutes. It's a brilliant story. Um, But it is this character called Boaz, as we'll see. And Boaz is this redeemer um, who comes and he redeems back um, this family lineage. And it it involves one of the greatest love stories in the Bible as well. Like many popular love stories, you have two unlikely people who fall in love, right? Those are the best kind of love stories. It's the beauty and the beast. It's uh, Shrek and and Fiona. It's uh, me and my wife probably. Like there's all these kind of, you know characters uh, that don't seem like they're they're unlikely couple. And this is what we see here. We have this Israelite gentleman in Boaz and this foreign Moabite widow uh, immigrant, um, and they end up um, together. And so this is going to be this, uh, I hope, a hopeful and helpful um, series uh, that will help us enter into the story of, of God's redemption, his plans, his purposes, uh, even when we don't see them, even when what we are clinging on to mostly is hope. And it's an important story that we need to uh, look at. Uh, we need to see the larger story of God's redeeming grace. Uh, redeeming grace is kind of the subtitle of, of the series because that is really kind of this main theme um, that we see. Ruth contributes to the overarching story of redemption. It advances the story of God's redeeming grace to Adam's fallen race. It magnifies God's covenantal faithfulness, his mercy to his people. This word that we see throughout this is hesed. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a covenantal faithfulness. It's, it's not just a romantic love, it's covenantal love. I hope this book also will give us a greater appreciation of God's providence, um, not just his sovereignty. Um, God's sovereignty is his right and his ability to act um, however he chooses and pleases. But his providence takes that sovereignty and adds purpose and wisdom to it. And Ruth, Ruth, the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, advances this meta-narrative scripture, but it doesn't do it in this kind of generic kind of way. We have real-life details of real-life situations in the lives of real characters, and God is working out his plans through these people, through these situations. What's going to be interesting is this book is there's no real miracles that take place in this book. Um, actually, the Lord isn't even mentioned a lot in this book. Um, it just seems like an ordinary kind of story. It just seems like normal human circumstances kind of unfolding. And that's where most of us live, right? Most of, most of us live in the book of Ruth. We don't live in the book of Exodus where we see uh, dramatic miracles taking place and, and walking through the, the, the split sea. Uh, we don't live in the Gospels where Jesus is raising the dead and we see miraculous feeding of 5,000. We live in just kind of ordinary circumstances. Sometimes circumstances that we wonder, is God actually there? Is he present? Is he moving? And this is the story of Ruth. We live by faith in God's ordinary providence. We mustn't assume that a lack of the miraculous means that God is not present and is not at work. He is present in the lives of these seemingly insignificant characters, a Moabite widow, a bitter mother-in-law, 
but he's displaying his meticulous providence just as he is at work in our lives. Our God is working out all things according to the counsel of his will. See this in Ephesians 1, and he's worthy of our trust and our adoration. It's also an example that we need to remember God's global mercy. The gospel isn't just for the Jew only. It was for the whole world, including Moabites. And we need to reflect God's heart for the nations in our lives and in our ministry. And it also gives us models of genuine godliness um, that we can follow as well. And so we're going to break this uh, first chapter into kind of three scenes, if you will. Um, it's, it's, uh, this is really just a book of, of narrative. This is very different from what we're doing in 1 Corinthians, where Paul's giving instruction. This is how you should live. This isn't how you should live. This is right. This is wrong. This is problematic. You shouldn't act this way. Um, Ruth is just this story. It's just a narrative. Um, and it's going to take us to zoom in on some parts, but also to step back because we know how the story ends. And we know how this story fits into the broader story of the scripture. And that's going to pour in all kinds of meaning um, to the story for us. And so let's look at kind of scene one, which is leaving home in the first five verses. Um, there are certain words that when you hear in your life have kind of devastating um, effect, don't they? Um, when I heard the doctor say, hey, you have cancer. Um, those are words that carry some weight. If you've ever heard the words, I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go. Um, these are words that uh, are devastating to us. And this is, Ruth opens up with some devastating words. It opens up uh, with tragedy. It takes place in a dark season. It says, when the judges ruled. Um, so this is a, a period of time where the, the Israel didn't have their king yet, um, so there had been no kings established. This is taking place when there were these judges, um, and they would be the ones that kind of made decisions and ruled over these kind of smaller um, tribes. We'll come back to that in a second. We read there's a famine in the land. Um, things get even worse, as we read, of three funerals of Naomi's husband and then her two sons. And we're left with this grieving widow in this foreign land a land that she's not from, a people that she doesn't belong to, worshiping gods that aren't hers, with her two widowed daughters-in-law. But we need to see the bigger picture. At the end of Ruth, um, at the very last verses of Ruth, we'll see really the biggest problem that they wouldn't have known at the time, but that we know, the central focus of Ruth concerns the origins of Israel's royal line. Um, the genealogy that appears at the end of Ruth magnifies the issue because we're going to see it's through Ruth and her child that we eventually get King David. And it's from King David and his lineage that we eventually have Jesus coming to the earth. And so this crisis that's introduced here involves the widowhood of Naomi and Ruth, meaning this royal line is threatened. God had promised to send a king to rule. We see this from Genesis 17, 35, 49, Numbers 24, Deuteronomy 17. And in the book of Judges, this is threatened because of widespread unfaithfulness of God's people. And in Ruth, this threat then is focused in a particular branch of the royal tree that was in danger of elimination. And so we get this hint of this royal line problem in, in very first one. We see Elimelech is an Ephratite. He's from an Ephratite lineage. This was a clan name of a specific population of those in Bethlehem. We read of this link uh, to David in 1 Samuel 17. And here we have this subsection of Bethlehem, which is going to factor in later as Boaz is introduced, who is also of the clan of Elimelech. Um, this period of time um, that, that this story takes place in is between the people of God settling into the promised land and the establishment of a monarchy or, or the kings that would to come. This is during the time of Judges. So there's, think of, there's no national government. Now that's hard for us to imagine. But imagine we didn't have a government. <laughs> uh, imagine we didn't have like even a, a, a government in, in, in Westminster or Dublin or however we, whoever rules us these days. It was just this collection of tribes. And these judges were, were local chieftains. And they were the ones that would protect and overthrow foreign oppressors. They were more like uh, local military leaders, not national political leaders. And the book of Judges, if you even go back just to the very last um, verse you can turn a page back to the very last book, uh, verse of Judges, describes this time. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Everybody was just coming up with their own moral code. Everybody did what they thought was right. There was no, um, there was no leader to lead them morally. Um, this is really a description of our time, isn't it? Um, morality is subjective. It's just whatever we decide is right for you, and whatever is right is right for me. And this is the type um, that, of, of period that this is in. And it underlines their need for a godly king to lead it. He had this repeated downward spiral of, of events that are occurring. God's people rebel against him. God acts in judgment against his people. And his people respond and repent, at least during the first few cycles. And then there are these periods of peace. But those periods were few and far between. And so over and over, this idea of everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel really is the defining um, description of their era. And so it's surprising then that we find these godly examples, especially in Ruth and Boaz in this time period. And in this dark season, the providence of God begins to shine. In the darkness um, of Advent, the light begins to get brighter once again. Despite sin, despite rebellion, God is working out his redemptive purposes. And this leads us to this idea of trust. Will we trust God? Will we trust him? And the situation, that, the immediate situation that they have to find trust in the Lord in is, for them, it's famine. Right? We see this in the first couple of verses. The famine had even reached Bethlehem. This is important. The word Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem, literally means house of bread. The house of bread has no bread. Um, it's like going to your bakery and there's nothing there. The shelves are empty. Um, and so what we see here is famine really more than likely is a result of God's judgment. Now, I want to be careful. We need to be careful because as we read, especially in the Old Testament, we can't draw straight lines. God had a particular ethnic group of people that he made specific covenant promises with. Um, so if they, if they would keep um, faithful to the covenant, he would bless them. And if they would break that covenant, if they were unfaithful, then he would judge them. And um, that judgment uh, is spelled out in the Old Testament in, in Deuteronomy um, 28. And that their, their blessing included a fertile land. It included protection from their enemies, protection against famine. It, in, it included fertility. But if they would rebel against God, the curses of their disobedience would include the opposite of those things. Infertility, defeat. Um, being taken into exile, famine. And so due to Israel's disobedience during the time of Ruth, God's word becomes true. The fields are barren, the crops are failing, the barns are empty. We should also remember that God historically uses famine to deliver his people and advance his sovereign purposes. Remember even the, the book of uh, the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 45. He uses a famine to discipline and to bring his people back to him. Again, we are under a new covenant now that doesn't include just one ethnic people, and so we can't make those lines as distinct that a certain kind of um, calamity is God's specific judgment. It could be. See that in the Old Testament, people are sick because of their disobedience, uh, but we shouldn't make those lines as clear uh, nationally um, as we did in the Old Testament. God had made a specific covenant with a specific people. But this famine should have led the people to repent. God promised that he would lift the curse should they repent. But instead of repenting, instead of turning back to the Lord, Elimelech takes matters into his own hands. Elimelech, his name literally means my God is king. These names are significant, aren't they? Because God doesn't seem to be king in his heart because he leaves the promised land. He leaves the land that God had given to his people, the people that he had promised he would supply their needs to if they were faithful to him. In some ways, he's like those who claim to be a Christian, but they make decisions and live just like the rest of the world. And this is what he does. He's not making decisions based on my God is king. He's making decisions like anybody else. Instead of turning back to the Lord, they turn their backs on the Lord and they go to live in Moab. Instead of mourning over the sin of the land and asking God to restore things, they leave the fields of Bethlehem and go to the fields of Moab. Now, we can certainly sympathize with a man wanting to provide for his family, um, but this, again, was a unique situation. This was the promised land, 
Elimelech's move was not like a person today maybe migrating to another country out of desperation or opportunity. God's presence was promised to his people to dwell in a particular place, in Israel. God had promised to bless his people there should they walk in his ways. But we see then they leave. And they don't just go to Moab for a particular time. They remain, they settle there. And Naomi ends up living in Moab for 10 years, for a decade. It seems like they feel more at home in the land of compromise than they do in the land of promise. Elimelech takes his wife Naomi. Naomi, her name means pleasant. Um, they also take their two sons, Maon, uh, Malon and Chilion. And again, their names, um, Malon is derived from a word that means sick. Chilion connotes, uh, um, comes from this word frailty or dying. Um, so Bella Grace is a much better name than like sick and dying. <laughs> Um, these are probably not the names their parents gave them. These are probably names uh, in the story given to signify some foreshadowing of what is happening here. Um, they are sick. They are dying. Um, they are signs of predictions of what is about to happen to them. And so they go to Moab, which is about 50 miles east on the other side of the Dead Sea of the Promised Land. And they come to live in the land of the Moabites. The Moabites trace their origin back to the incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter in Genesis 19. Um, and after the king of Moab, um, Balak hires the prophet Balaam, if you remember, to curse Israel. A plan um, was hatched to seduce Israel into sin by participating in false worship and sexual immorality. And as a result, God slays 24,000 Israelites. You can read that in number 20, uh, Numbers 25. Most recently, uh, Moab has oppressed Israel under Eglon, the king, who's this very fat man. If you remember that story from Sunday school, Ehud, the left-handed guy, stabs him um, and kills him. This is like full-on Game of Thrones kind of stuff uh, going on in the Old Testament. Um, and in that battle, 10,000 Moabites are killed. And so these are, these are not people that have traditionally been friendly neighbors um, to the Israelites. They've been people who have tried to Um, draw them away with false worship, um, and oppress them. But things get worse. In Moab, Naomi experiences uh, just a nightmare, doesn't she? A triple bereavement. Her husband dies first. Um, Her two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Um, Ruth, whose name likely is derived from a word meaning refreshment, um, as we'll see in the story. And so they marry Moabite women. Now, the law didn't prohibit marriages to Moabites specifically. Um, There were some Canaanite kind of tribes that were specifically ruled out. Um, But no doubt the Moabites, um, although they're not listed among Canaanite nations, um, they certainly worshipped a foreign god. And in the spirit of the law, no doubt would have had them included. Um, We see in Deuteronomy 23, it did prohibit Moabites from entering into the assembly They couldn't enter into the assembly of the people of God. God was trying to distinguish a certain kind of people um, that would obey him, that would be distinct from the nations around them. And through that obedience and faithfulness, God would bless them, thus blessing the nations around them. You can imagine the grief of Naomi attending funeral after funeral after funeral. Picture her. She's a widow in a foreign land. She's no significance there. She has no husband to protect and provide. She has no sons to do the same. Consequently, she's no social standing and no hope to carry on her family line. And she's aging. Um, We can identify with her grief. And we can identify with what Naomi needed most, which is hope. Here she has no hope. Naomi doesn't know how things are going to turn out. We have the privilege of knowing her whole story. It's a story that goes from emptiness to fullness, from tragedy to glory. But she doesn't know any of this yet. So the question is, can we still trust God when we're in the midst of emptiness? When all seems lost? When hope seems fleeting? When all that you've relied on for your protection and your provision is gone? Can we still worship God like Job in our suffering? 
Job who recognizes that all comes from the hand of God. And if it all is taken away by the hand of God, then still blessed be the name of the Lord. And so this is this opening scene, um, the scene of them leaving the promised land. In the second scene then, um, we have the return. Um, This is a key word in this section. Um, The word return appears 12 times in this chapter. Have you ever faced a turning point, a crossroads, a place that you had to make a major decision, especially to go back? But this this is a geographical turning point, but we're also going to see it's a spiritual turning point. There's a turning back to Bethlehem, um, no doubt for Naomi, but for Ruth, this is a turning to Yahweh. This is a turning to um, the God of Israel in faith, and it's this pivotal moment in the story, and it's a pivotal moment in the story of the Bible. We see God's gracious provision. We read that God has visited his people with food again. His covenant blessings have returned to the land of promise. And Naomi decides to return. And this whole section is just full of God's grace abounding to them. First of all, Naomi's able to hear that the good news has returned. She's able to hear that God has visited his people. This is without Twitter without a smartphone, but somehow in a foreign land, she's able to hear. She's, she's heard of it. It's God's grace to her. The fact that God has provided food is this also remarkable gift of grace. This is the first mention of God in the book of Ruth. David, the psalmist of Dorite in 145, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desires of every living thing. It's easy to forget that, isn't it? In our modern um, urban settings, God's gracious provision for our needs is often overlooked. We just go to Tesco. We don't have to worry about if the rains will come um, at all. And so we should be grateful. Um, It's why we give thanks, isn't it? It's why we say grace at meals. It's not just some superstitious thing we do, but we do that with intentional hearts, knowing that every good gift has come from God. This idea of God's grace is being expressed in this word visit. Throughout redemptive history, it's used to speak of God's gracious intervention in a crisis. We see this in Genesis 21 and 1 Samuel 2. It's the same word that is used to speak of God visiting infertile women, enabling them to conceive and give birth. Interestingly, the book of Ruth involves a story about barrenness also and the Lord's gracious intervention. In verse 6, he visits with food, but soon he will, he will visit with fertility. We see God's grace in the phrase, his people. The fertile land was a statement. God had not forgotten his people to a particular place. And while we don't hear of any specific acts of, of repentance, what's happening is this is zoomed in on one particular family. The good crops in Bethlehem appear to be the Lord's response to genuine piety, maybe even in people like Boaz. Whatever the case, God is mercifully acting on behalf of his people. And then we have these three conversations that take place between the women. Um, this is a, an incredible book. Like you said, it's mostly narrative. 56 of the 85 total verses are dialogue um, that are happening between the characters in the book. And so this first exchange is Naomi's, Naomi's proposal and Ruth and Orpah, it's all I can do not to call her Oprah, um, protest. Um, but somewhere along the journey, they've, they, the three women are heading back to, to Bethlehem. Maybe they've stopped for the night. Um, and Naomi realizes, listen, this isn't, you guys should go back. You should go back. You should go back to your mother's house, she tells him in verse 8. Now, it's interesting because most of the time, um, the phrase, your father's house is used. Um, remember, this is a patriarchal society that they live in. Um, so a widow without a husband, without sons, is a very vulnerable person, um, um, is, is very exposed, as it were. But she says, go back to your mother's house. This is a phrase that only occurs three other times in the Old Testament, and it's usually in the context referring to love and to marriage. She's encouraging them to go back while they're still young, while they still have a chance to find another husband. She starts to specifically make reference to finding a husband in Moab, right? She offers this prayer for the ladies. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead. That's the, the, the husbands that have passed away and with me. And this word kindly is this word has said. It speaks of God's faithful love. It's his loyalty, his faithfulness, his grace, his mercy, his compassion. She wishes Yahweh to be merciful to them even in the midst of harsh circumstances. 
Naomi, we'll see, is, is bitter because of the hand that she's been dealt. But she still believes that God was indeed kind, that his power and grace extended beyond the borders of Israel. And therein there was hope. And she asked that the Lord would grant that they find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kisses them, and it triggers this session of mourning and weeping. You can see their affection for one another, which must have spoke to Naomi in some way that her daughters-in-law, not blood relatives, foreigners in a sense, had become so attached to her. The second part of the conversation then is, is Naomi's persistence and then um, Orpah's farewell, but Ruth's commitment. She in effect says, ladies, you need to think this through. Even if I could have sons now, even if I were pregnant now and, and were able to have sons, You'd have, you're not going to wait around for them to be old enough to marry. You're better off to go back to Moab where you have the prospect of another husband. She begins to explain her, her perspective in verse 13. She says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's wounded. She, sh- she shifts her focus from the ladies to an accusation against God. She essentially says, why would you go with me when God's curse is on me? Things could get worse. Don't stay attached to me. God's hand has been against me. Go and fend for yourself. And even though Naomi doesn't interpret things entirely correctly, it's important to see that she does at least see God's involvement in her life. Things were not outside of his sovereign control. She's not an atheist. She's not someone who's given up perspective on who God is and what he's able to do. But in some, her bitter complaint is kind of cloaked in this firm faith. Her declaration is, listen, I believe in God. I'm just not really happy with him right now. You ever been there? You ever felt that way? I have. I've never had a... a, a crisis of faith that made me stop believing in God. But I've definitely had moments in my life where I'm certainly not happy with him. If he's there, he doesn't seem like he's being very fair. He certainly doesn't seem just. His rule certainly doesn't seem kindly in the moment. And if that's where you've been or where you even are now today, you're not alone. It's one of the things I love about the scripture. It doesn't try to sugarcoat anything. There are people with real faith, but there are people with real doubts that have to grapple with real hard circumstances in their life and cling on to hope that God is still active and working in the midst of them. So now Ruth and Orpah have a decision to make. In some ways, it's the decision that we all have to make. Will we forsake all and follow after God, or will we turn and go back to Moab? Will we chase after kind of false gods? Orpah makes a decision to return back. You could say she takes the broad road, but Ruth clings tightly to her mother-in-law. This idea of clinging, it's the same verse that we see in Genesis of a man and a wife clinging to one another, cleaving to each other. This is a massive decision, remember, for Ruth to make. She's a Moabite woman. She knew that she's going to be as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich would be. She's not kosher. She's unclean, and yet she decides to go. Orpah's decision was conventional wisdom. It was practical, right? It seems like the right thing to do. Ruth requires more than conventional wisdom. It required faith. It required a trust in the midst of risk. And it's a faith that we should imitate. It's the kind of faith that bears fruit, a relational faith, an active faith. It's a... It's a faith that God will act, that God would provide. We'll see, we'll talk more about this seeming conversion here in a moment. And then the third part of their exchange, Naomi's final plea and Ruth's full commitment to her. She reminds Ruth of her theological and national uh, roots in verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She's reminding her of her national roots, but also her theological roots. 
And here in verse 16 and 7, we have Ruth's stunning profession of faith. And the center point is the most important part, the middle part. You have these five sentences in verses 16 to 17. It's this poetic structure. We've talked about this before uh, that happens in Hebrew language um, where you have these uh, first and fifth sentences that correspond, the second and the fourth correspond, and in the middle is really the center. In the middle is the most important part. And so look at verses 16 and 17. Um, this, this idea of a, it's called a chiasm. It's, it's the way that they structure things to make emphasis in the Hebrew language. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave or to f- uh, leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So we have this poetic structure. The first sentence, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, matches the last one. May the Lord do to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. The second sentence matches the fourth. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. But in the middle is the focal point. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. This magnifies Ruth's calculated response to Naomi. Ruth has counted the cost. She's not just following Naomi. This isn't just a human relationship that she's committing to. Your God is now my God. Because your God is my God, because your people are now my people, then I will go with you. Her primary commitment isn't just to Naomi. It's a commitment to Yahweh. It's a commitment to the true and living God. This is a beautiful statement of conversion that we see. Ruth is declaring that the God who made a covenant with Abraham, the God who brought the people out of Egypt, will now be her God. We see her conversion is really confirmed in the next chapter where she says, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Finding shelter under wings is a statement that we see of personal trust in the Lord. Psalm 17, Psalm 36, 57, 61, 63, 91. It's this, it's this phrase that's used over and over again. It's also similar to what Paul says in Thessalonians 1, that you've turned from, from idols to serve the living God. This is authentic Christianity, turning your back on the gods of this world and everything else in order to have Christ. This is what Orpah chooses not to do. And it's what Ruth chooses to do. There's a few things that we can observe from Ruth's uh, conversion that I think would be encouraging to us again this morning. The conversion of Ruth is one of the primary answers to the dark provinces that we see in chapter 1. Ruth is going to be the conduit through whom God pours his grace to the old and bitter widow Naomi. For the struggling nation of Israel, Ruth will be the means through whom the nation's greatest king, David, will come. For a world separated from God and lost in idolatry, Ruth is going to extend the messianic line. Jesus Christ will come through and be the savior to both Jews and Gentiles. We need to see how pivotal her conversion is for the immediate context of Ruth for sure, but also the greater context of the redemptive story line of the scripture. We also see our story in Ruth, if you're a Christian this morning. Her transformation should encourage us. It should fill us with praise to God because we too once were outsiders, but God has made us insiders. We too were once alienated, dead in our sin. But Ephesians 2 says that in Christ, we've been brought into a relationship with God. We once were not of the people of God, but through Christ, through the lineage of Ruth, we have been brought into the people of God. We too once worshiped the gods of the world, but we've turned to the living God, all by grace, all by God's redeeming grace. We also see the relationship of personal faith and the community of faith. Even this morning, as we dedicate a child, we do that not just in in one single family, but in the context of a broader family of God. She uses the phrase, my people. It it emphasizes how we're not just saved into a relationship with God. We're saved into a relationship with a community, into a people. 
Sometimes that faith community is filled with people that are difficult to love, right? That's why we're told to bear with one another, forgive one another. Ruth is with Naomi, maybe not the ideal person, pretty bitter. She's, we're going to see that's what she actually wants to be called. Doesn't seem like a very hopeful person. It's trying to get rid of you, trying to be isolated. Maybe we've had someone like that in your MC or core group. Maybe it's you. We should never estimate what God can do through one conversion either. Granted, Ruth is a special case being in the royal line, but it's often just one conversion in a family or a church that creates this glorious kind of gospel movement. One conversion often leads to multiple conversions. Sometimes it's one conversion of one person in a church that reawakens a church to the power of the gospel. Sometimes it's that one new believer that brings renewal to longtime saints that have lost their hope. And it should also encourage us and motivate us to mission because God still converts outsiders. God was still drawing not just the people of Israel to himself, but his plan was also always to have a people broader than that. He's drawing even Moabites to himself. Ruth, like Rahab before her, is this outsider, hears of the mighty deeds of the Lord, and somehow God brings her to trust um, in, in Yahweh through faith. She's lived with Naomi for 10 years, no doubt. She's heard uh, about her faith. She's experienced those things. Somewhere along the way, Ruth heard and believed. And we do the same. We go in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that God still has people that he wants to bring to himself. And that brings us in as we begin to close to the third scene, them arriving home. Naomi shows up unannounced, and her presence creates a bit of buzz in this small town. Um, Naomi's changed. She's been gone 10 years. No doubt physically she is a bit older. Um, She's grief-stricken. She's relationally, emotionally empty. She's left uh, as the pleasant one, what her name means, but now she's returned as grief-stricken. It's possible the ladies of the town had heard of all that she had went through and were concerned for her. And they come and she says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. That name, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, should ring a bell because Mara is the place where God's people is. He's leading them out into the wilderness. They come to a place called Mara and they can't drink the water because the water is bitter. It's undrinkable. And God performs a miracle, tells Moses to throw a log in the water, and that log makes the water sweet. But this place, Mara, meaning bitter, is what she begins to call herself. You have to admire at least the transparency and honesty of Naomi. She admits her state of bitterness. Job does the same, right? Job 27, as God lives, who's taken away my right and the, Almi- and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. We have to be honest with God. We have to be honest with ourselves. And sometimes we feel like we can't be honest with the Lord. We have, to, we have to separate ourselves from God because we feel bitter, because we feel like we've been dealt, you know, a raw hand, a bad deal. We can't be honest with those things. That's the place that we need to be, just like Job, who's honest before God. Naomi also is honest about where she's at. But when we feel this way, when we feel bitter, we need to remember the Lord's grace because what happened in Mara, the Lord took away that bitterness. The Lord eventually provided for his people. And so in times when we feel bitter, When we feel like we can't understand how God is at work, we need to look back. We need to remember what God has done. She could have looked back on the Exodus events. She could have remembered how God delivered his people again, even through Mara. For us, um, we look to Jesus' incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. We see Christ. Naomi is described as being empty in this chapter. We look to the one who emptied himself. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus empties himself. He leaves heaven for earth. He condescends in order that we might receive fullness 
That we would have fullness of forgiveness, fullness of eternal life, full assurance, fullness of hope, fullness of joy. And so maybe you're in a bitter time. And I would encourage us to remember. That's why we gather every Sunday. We sing songs of God's grace. We listen to God's word about his goodness, his grace. We speak the gospel to one another as a community of faith. That's why we'll take the Lord's Supper again here in a few moments. We remember God's grace to us. Naomi Vance, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She attributes her pain to God. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She does indeed ascribe sovereignty to God, but this sovereignty that she, she ascribes to him isn't accurate. It's, not, it's one without grace. It's an omnipotent power without compassion. It's a judicial will without any kind of mercy. She views God at the moment, at least, as this kind of cosmic troublemaker bringing calamity upon her. But Ruth is a nobler example. It's in the midst of the darkness of Naomi that God is working out his sovereign plan, his sovereign purposes through Ruth. This is the story of Advent, God working out his, his plan in the dark, in ways that are unseen, in ways through a woman bringing a child. And so we see they come in verse 22, their return trip to Bethlehem is complete, and they come to the barley harvest. And here Ruth is called for the first time Ruth the Moabite. That'll be used repeatedly throughout the book. And this title reminds us of this ethnic tension. It anticipates the drama that would come because Ruth is an outsider. And we read of this word of hope at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's a new beginning. And so Ruth 1 begins and ends with talking about bread. It begins with a mention of a famine in Bethlehem. The house of bread is without bread. And it ends with the mention of the beginning of the barley harvest in Bethlehem. It's a change of circumstance. God's intervened. He's visited his people. He's provided them with bread once again. And again, Bethlehem is associated with David, isn't it? It's the house of David. David's greatest son, Jesus, comes from Bethlehem. It's in Bethlehem that shepherds are summoned to come and see the Messiah. Jesus would be born in the house of bread, but he would also declare himself to be the bread of life in John 6. It's a reminder that only in Christ, only in Jesus can we find our ultimate satisfaction. Our bread fills our belly for a while, but our soul is the emptiness that needs to be filled. And only Christ, the bread of life, can do that for us. Only he can give us ultimate satisfaction and eternal life. We, like Naomi, come back to the house of bread empty. And as we'll see, experience the fullness of his grace once again. It's why we come. It's why we take bread every single week. It's why we take wine. To remember this hope that we have. This hope that was secured through the breaking of God's body for us in Christ on the cross. Jesus institutes this meal symbolically. This bread broken is my body broken for you. This wine signifying my blood is this new covenant poured out for you. And so in the midst of everybody just doing what's right in their own eyes, there's no spiritual leadership taking place. It's a bit chaotic. God's judgment in a famine is taking place. People have left the promised land where they were meant to stay for God to provide. Hope springs eternal. God visits his people. There's a returning back to him. And there's hope for that emptiness to be filled once again. This is our story, our story, our need of being met by a redeemer, one who would provide and protect us, not just in a temporary kind of way, but in an eternal kind of way, protecting us from ourselves, from Satan, from the power of sin, from an eternity separated from him. And he does that by providing the bread of life. May today be the day that if you're 
tempted by bitterness, tempted to give up hope. May the beginning of this story start to kindle that fire of hope once again in your own life. That God is still working in the dark, that He still sees His people, that His plan is still in unfolding. May we have hope and trust in Him, even as Ruth, our great example for us to follow, did. Let's pray. Father, we admit our limited um, sight is uh, imperfect people. We don't have this, the type of sovereignty and providence, omniscience that you have. We, like Peter, get overcome by our immediate circumstances and begin to sink. And so, Father, we pray uh, once again for those of us that know you, that are counted among your people, that you would renew our hope once again, and that we would have confidence in your sovereignty, not just in your sovereignty, but in your kind providence as well. That doesn't guarantee us uh, from going through hard times. People still die. Famine still happens. But we don't face these things without hope. We face these things knowing um, that you are God who is still unfolding your purposes and your wisdom for your purposes. And so help us this morning to put our, our hope and our faith and our trust in you once again. Even as we take bread to be reminded of how you secured all of this for us through your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. Father, for those of us that are here that aren't Christians, that, that haven't put our trust in you um, ever, may today be that day. May be today the day that we confess as, as Ruth did. Um, that the God of the Bible would be your God. That you would be counted among God's people today. May today be the day that God visits you and fills you with his immeasurable grace. Spirit, we ask that you would do uh, what only you can do. Fill our hearts once again. Give us your peace, your hope, your love. We ask this in your name.